Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 164 of the Independent Advisors podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial plannings. Good morning, Matt. Morning, Mark. Sharp dressed man today. Thank you. <laughs> Looking good. I guess these people have to check me out on YouTube. Yeah, I think that uh, that's worth the while for most people. Thank you, buddy. So just to let everybody know, Matt is uh, drinking coffee for the first time in a long time. So uh, if he's a little more energetic than normal, which I don't think he needs on a day-to-day <laughs> basis in the podcast, that is, that is why. <laughs> so uh, before we get into it, uh, as always, we'll take the first couple of minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of... Of the market close on August 24th, and this data is from Y Charts. S&P 500 index is up 0.3% for the month and down 13.1% for the year. The Dow Jones Industrial Average up 0.4% for the month and down 9.3% for the year. NASDAQ Composite Index up 0.3% for the month, down 20.5% for the year. The iShares Russell 2000 ETF that tracks the small cap Russell 2000 index up 2.8% for the month and down 13.5% for the year. And then the Vanguard All World X United States ETF down 1.9% for the month and down 17.3% for the year. Three-month treasury rate at 2.82%, the two-year treasury rate 3.36%, and the 10-year treasury yield at 3.11%. Um, moving on to big headlines, current events from the week, I think the biggest one, Matt, that people are probably seeing in the news pretty heavily right now is that the Biden administration announced its student loan forgiveness plan. Um, and again, we're not here to debate whether it's a good plan or bad plan, just giving everybody the facts of what we know so far. Right? Got it. Got it. Um, So the plan uh, that they put forth yesterday is to eliminate up to $10,000 in federal loan debt for individual borrowers with annual adjusted gross incomes of under $125,000 if you're single or couples who earn less than $250,000. And this also applies to parent plus loans. And just as a reminder for people, adjusted gross income is all pretty much all forms of your income added together minus any deductions, right? So it should be, I believe, line number 11 on your 1040 on your tax return. So if people want to see that number from last year, it should be line 11 on your 1040. Roger that. Um, In addition to the loan forgiveness, uh, the president will also be extending the pandemic era student loan pause on payments and interest through the end of the year. So the federal student loan payments were supposed to resume next week on August 31st, but that has been extended throughout the end of the year. And again, that measure began in March of 2020 and obviously has been repeatedly extended since. Um, We still really don't have an idea when the forgiveness is going to take place, but the education department has promised more details in the coming weeks. But at a minimum, uh, before student loan payments resume in January of 2023, it's expected 
uh, to see or have more details when the forgiveness is going to take place and how that's going to happen. Got it. Uh, a couple more points before we move on. People with loans uh, do not need to take any action uh, to receive the debt relief right now. People are going to receive a notification from their loan servicer uh, once they do need to take action. Um, some popular questions that have come up. Does this apply to private student loans? It does not. It's only federal loans. Um, is debt forgiveness tax exempt? So debt forgiveness usually is treated as income on taxes, but fortunately for student loan borrowers, this canceled student debt is federally taxed exempt. So it's not going to be taxed. Uh, last but not least, and this is uh, the biggie that I think a lot of people are asking, Matt, is what if I've already paid off my loans? Mm -hmm. And the answer as of right now is that this measure won't apply to balances that have already been paid off. Hmm. And especially, and another point on that as well is like, okay, well, what if I have less than $10,000 of student debt? What if you have $6,000? The $6,000 will be canceled and there is no additional benefit to get you to that $10,000 level. Hmm. Okay. okay. So um, there's going to be a lot of stuff in the news about this coming up, but that's what we know so far. We'll keep everybody updated if there are any changes to that um, or if the uh, Department of Education comes out with any more specifics here in the next couple of weeks and months before the end of the year. Roger that. Uh, next, existing home sales. Sales were down uh, almost 6% in July to the lowest level in two years. This was the sixth consecutive month that sales have slowed amid rising mortgage rates, uptick in home prices, and recession concerns continue to push prospective buyers out of the market. And I think one thing that I'm noticing, at least in Dayton, Matt, and talking to some friends that are realtors, is these new a lot of these new homes that are coming on the market for sale they're still priced as if interest rates were still at 2%. Mm -hmm. And there's a big disconnect right now between getting mortgages and, and paying for these larger priced homes. And eventually, something's got to give there, right? You know, mm -hmm. sellers are going to have to lower their prices or interest rates are going to have to go down because you're not going to see a lot of deals getting done, in my opinion, at these prices with the level of interest rates. Well said. And I do have a piece coming up. Uh, I do have an update on housing today. So I think that will shed some additional light on what you just mentioned. Okay. Okay. Uh, moving on to tweets, articles, and research from this week. Uh, the first thing I had was an article from a financial advisor, IQ, titled Most Cutting Spending But Not Retirement Contributions. I like that. Um, so this was data from a State Street survey conducted with 243 adults with investable assets of 250,000 or more. And the survey was conducted from June 28th to July 5th. Disclaimer, again, I'm not a huge fan of surveys because it's just feedback from people. You can't actually see if they're doing this or not, but I thought this was interesting, so I wanted to share. So 58% of the respondents in this survey believe the U.S. economy is heading for a recession in the next six to 12 months, and only 17% believe that inflation has peaked. As a result, 51% of the respondents have cut back on discretionary spending, such as dining out and entertainment. 35% are spending less on vacations or have delayed a major purchase. And 29% have had to reduce spending on essentials, such as groceries and gasoline. However, despite these concerns, 
most investors are staying on track with their savings. Notably, less than one quarter of Americans were willing to curtail contributions to their retirement savings or their child's education savings, which demonstrates a firm commitment to their long-term financial goals. So I think that's something that historically we haven't seen in prior uh, periods of recession or uh, economic weakness is that I think one of the first things historically people have cut is contributions to their 401k. Absolutely. Um, and especially when we're in a, a tumbling stock market, people want to pull back and be like, well, I don't want to throw I, good money after bad. Right, exactly. Which I think you actually have to think the opposite is that you're just buying in at lower prices. But um, I know I think you have a piece coming up on the on the American consumer, but this goes to pad that data that things aren't too bad, at least right now. To build upon what you said about the difference in these surveys sometimes about, you know, saying one thing and doing another, I have hard data in a little bit on the consumer that really tells us what the health is. And then as you kind of previewed, it'll shed some additional light that I think, um, you know, a, a little bit of a preview, the health of the American consumer is better than most people perceive okay. based upon the data. Okay. Okay. Um, last thing I had was a blog post by JC Peretz from All Star Charts titled Year Three of a Bull Market. So he starts the article off uh, by saying, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, then it's probably not a chicken. <laughs> That's how I look at what is potentially year three of a new bull market. Look at the most important cycle bottoms in stock market history. You'll notice that the powerful thrust in year one, followed by a messy digestion of those gains in year two, and then all those bull markets resumed in year, in year three. So again, uh, John is going to throw this uh, chart up on the YouTube page for people that are watching. Uh, but if you're not watching, you can get this chart on our show notes, which is at Twitter at Jessup Wealth or Facebook or LinkedIn at Jessup Wealth Management. So what this shows, Matt, is it shows six prior instances of stock market lows. Uh -huh. It shows year one with really, really strong returns like we had off the lows in 2020, which uh -huh. would count as year one of the new bull market. Okay. Year two, it seems to just trade sideways to down. And then year three is a resumption of the upward movement in the market. So uh, the prior periods that JC was talking about were 1921 to 24, uh, 32 to 35, 82 to 85, 03 to 05, 09 to 2011, and then obviously 2020 until now. So, and if you zoom in on what we're experiencing right now, this chart looks very similar to where we had a really strong move downward, which was COVID in 2020, mm -hmm. really strong move up, which was 2020 to 2021. In 2022, this kind of sideways choppy movement and down with the expectation that if this plays out like prior cycles, mm -hmm. we could be in for a pretty strong year three of this uh, resuming of the bull market. So he also adds that we're coming off historically pessimistic sentiment readings, which we've talked about before. We're seeing breadth thrust clustering together over the past month. And again, breadth thrust meaning more stocks participating in this upward movement over the past two months. Yep. And the cycle's price action looks very similar to all of those. So 
Um, again, by just looking at the charts, it looks like we're almost through the worst of it. And again, just a reminder that most of the time the stock market goes up and this just could be, you know, a year or a little longer than a year of a digestion of those gains that we saw in 2020 and part of 2021. I mean, well said. I mean, a couple points I want to add to this. You talked about corporate insider buying recently is uh, indicating to us hard data that's very bullish. Mm -hmm. And people aren't going to be buying their own stock if they didn't think the stock was going to go up. Correct. Right? That's very bullish when you look at some of the amount of buying in historical context with the market bottom, bullish. You look at uh, what the market does after a 20% correction in a single quarter, forward-looking rates of return six, 12 months out. That's bullish. And so I think the big point that I want to leave with on this topic is not every month or every quarter is going to be positive going forward. But I think the message I would like to send, it's my opinion, the trend is going to be higher, generally speaking, my opinion. But don't expect every month or every quarter to be positive. Good yeah. way of saying it? Yeah, it's a great way to say it. And I think, you know, some people have been conditioned recently to think that it's always like that because it was for the first how many months after the COVID low. Absolutely. Right. It was just a straight shot upwards. Absolutely. But, you know, it's back to the thing that, that we like to say a lot is it, it's more of a two steps forward, one step back. Well said. Type of scenario. Absolutely. So I'll turn it over to you. All right. So you kind of preview, you talked about housing um, at the top of the podcast, right? So my first piece is a blog post by Zero Hedge on August 16th, Mark. And to kind of start off, um, this was referencing something called the NAHB Wells Fargo Housing Market Index. What is that? It's a monthly survey of members a part of this community designed to take the pulse of single family housing market. The survey asks respondents to rate market conditions for, here's the key point, for the sale of new homes at the present time and in the next six months, as well as traffic of prospective buyers of new homes. So this is really a survey from the home builders themselves, okay? So the headline index uh, uh, for this one I'm speaking about fell in June from 55 to 49. This is the eighth straight month of declines, marking the worst stretch since the housing market collapsed in 2007. Do I need to say that again? Eight straight month, and that is the worst stretch since 07. Okay. Marking the first time since May of 2020, the index has fell below the break-even measure of 50. And the reading was not only below consensus of an unchanged 55 print, but was worse than the most pessimistic estimate of the Bloomberg, Bloomberg survey of economists. So now Jenna's going to put up for our viewers on YouTube uh, this chart that's associated uh, with this topic. And what this chart does, Mark, is it goes back uh, to the mid-80s, and it overlays home builder sentiment versus home buyer sentiment. And what you're really going to see is a drastic disconnect between the two to where you've seen home buyer sentiment really start to roll over uh, about a year and a half ago. And you're really only starting to see home builder sentiment start to roll over recently. And kind of says to me that 
you, what you alluded to earlier, you can fortunately might have to see some of these builders have to lower prices. I'm seeing information about cancellations really going up. Um, I think that home builders since the great financial crisis, for the most part, really weren't building spec homes. We started to kind of see that the last couple of years. And um, I don't necessarily think that bodes well uh, for the short term. Now let's go a little deeper. I got two more charts. We have next, uh, Jenna's gonna put up the Housing Affordability Index. And again, all these charts will be in our show notes for our listeners on the podcast. But the Housing Affordability Index measures whether or not a typical family earns enough income to qualify for a mortgage loan on a typical home at the national and regional levels based upon most recent price and income data. Guess what? U.S. housing affordability has reached the lowest level on record since 1996, okay? And so, you know, that's an issue when you kind of look at supply and demand. You know, people can't afford, you know, the, the demand's gonna come down, excess supply, and what happens to prices, Mark? Yeah. It's often. Yeah, it comes in. So last thing is, uh, last chart I wanna show is, um, is price drops on homes. This is a chart that was also on there. It's data from Redfin, which we've referenced before. We are seeing a record number of new listings with price cuts amid the kind of fall in demand. And what you're gonna see is this chart overlays 2020 with 2021, and it shows so far the data through June where we stand for 2022. And really what you're gonna see, at least through June, is that 6% of listings had price drops and the highest it uh, got in 21 was 4%. And if I had to speculate, if I had the data today for July and August, I bet you this is gonna keep going up. And so what this says to me is, don't be surprised, listeners and viewers, if you actually start to see softening in home prices over the next six to 12 months. And in my opinion, this could hit harder in what I would call uh, vacation destinations where people have second homes. Because when you see softness in the economy, you tend to see people who maybe bought that vacation home, maybe for some wrong reasons, which is, I'm gonna enjoy this, and oh, this is gonna be a good investment. Yeah, the prices keep going up. And what have I always said on the podcast about a vacation home? You don't really look at it through the lens of an investment. If you're gonna be using it and enjoying it, you know, plan to own that sucker for a decade plus. And if you're looking at it through the lens of an investment, truly look at it through that lens because once these prices start to turn, that's when you tend to have people kind of capitulate and it throws excess supply in those types of areas. Anything you'd like to add? Yeah, I think it's just, you know, we talk about the pen pendulum swinging every single time where, you know, during COVID, you had the, the pendulum swing all the way to one side of, of uh middle point and now it's swinging back to the other side where prices are coming in and starting to normalize and again this i think is going along with the inflation narrative that inflation has peaked because now you're starting to see these prices and housing come in um and we're not going to always be in an environment where you know loaning money is essentially going to cost you zero exactly and you know do i think that it's interest rates are going to stay elevated for a long period of time? No, but at some point this had to come back to the middle point. Right? Yeah. And the thing that I actually like about the interest rate cycle right now 
is it does put the Fed in a position to where they got a lot of ammunition to, let's just say, spur the economy when they need to. So let's say we get to the middle of next year and the data is still weak. Guess what? There's a lot of lowering in interest rates they can do. And I'm not saying they're going to lower 75 bips, but every meeting they lower a, a quarter of a point for six months. I mean, they have, they could easily do that. Mm -hmm. And so um, one thing I'm kind of excited about in the future is they've put a lot of bullets back in the chamber, they being the Federal Reserve. Yeah, no, it's definitely a good thing because there was a while there where people were nervous that interest rates were going to go negative because, because there wasn't, what else could they do? wasn't a lot of room to go. Good said. Well said. All right. So here's my next thing. And this isn't a big point for our viewers and listeners. And I've said this in, over the past month, but I have some data that will help support what I've been saying, which is this. Things will get worse before they get better. So here's my pre-planned notes I wanted to share. So remember, we've been mentioning on the podcast that we feel the stock market is about nine months or so ahead of the economy. Even though we feel the market bottomed back in June, data on Main Street America, Mark, could continue to get worse. Example in point, ISM manufacturing data. So according to Bespoke Investment Group on August 18th, they analyzed data from five Federal Reserve districts that report monthly manufacturing data. Those five districts, and this is my educational point of the day for our viewers and listeners, is New York, Philly, Kansas City, Richmond, and Dallas. And it's in an attempt to estimate how the nation's overall manufacturing data might look in the coming months. So the primary nationwide data point for this topic is called the ISM Manufacturing Index. And that index is a monthly indicator of the U.S. Uh, activity, uh, economic activity, based upon a survey of purchasing managers at more than 300 manufacturing firms. It is considered to be a key indicator on the state of the U.S. economy. Now, at this time, for our viewers on YouTube, Jenna's going to put up a chart that Bespoke had in this research note. And I would highly encourage our listeners on the podcast, um, if they're driving right now, don't be pulling up, you know, your phone for, for, the, for the notes. But Please. when you get to a point where you can look at this chart, I think this is advantageous to look at because it shows the five Fed uh, districts showing more declines to come for the index. And so what you're going to see is those five Fed districts actually will show some contraction. And as over the next couple of months, the nationwide survey from ISM manufacturing will catch up. Guess what you think the headlines are going to be, Mark? They're going to be worse. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so my message is this is a prime example. And I want our viewers and listeners to know, don't be surprised if the news you hear indicates that things are getting worse in Main Street America. And so someone might sit here and say, but how is this not going to affect the stock market, Matt? I'd look at them right now and say, if you look at the price destruction that happened in the first half of the year to most stocks, there is a dramatic disconnect between their underlying fundamentals and where those prices were at. Meaning, a lot of companies didn't actually have negative earnings growth year over year when they reported recently, just that the growth year over year came down a little bit. Mm -hmm. But some of these stocks in that six month period were down 20, 30, 40, 50, 60%. And that's where the disconnect is. Mm -hmm. So when someone hears this and they think, man, this could affect the market. Well, I would argue that a lot it of these names did. already 
got taken out to the back of the woodshed, got nailed. And you're now seeing people starting to put money back into the market. And the last comment I'll make on this topic, it just still reminds me a little bit of 2009, where the market bottomed in March of 09, you had over 650,000 job losses that month. Things didn't feel like they were getting better in Main Street America till the fourth quarter. And between that point, I bet you the average index was up over 20% easily. Right. So just my words of wisdom that the market right now is forward looking. Anything you'd like to add, sir? Yeah. I, you know, I've seen people and analysts, you know, throwing out the terms like depression, depressionary environment over the next six to 12 months. And I'm like, okay, that's. It's a little aggressive or you're getting too far ahead of your skis because at least the data that we look at, we're nowhere near a, a depressionary environment. So I just caution people to hmm. uh, take what they hear on uh, the mainstream media outlets with a grain of salt because is their, their job is to get your eyeballs to watch them uh, at all costs. Absolutely. So, and that's um, why I really love the way we do the podcast, Mark, because when we are presenting opinions, we like to show data that is relevant to that opinion at those times. Mm -hmm. And um, and I th and one of them was, you know, I was watching a video online that they were talking about the, the ISM manufacturing index. They were talking about the purchasers man managing index and that how they're in free fall and that this is really, really not good for the economy. But like you said, they don't put it into context where you know, indices, some indices drop between 20 and 30% already this year. I can, I'm not going to name specific industrial stocks, but there's a lot of industrial stocks that are popping into my head right now. And I'm not exaggerating. A lot of these stocks are down 50% plus still from their 52-week uh, high, right? And so it just goes to show that, you know, a lot of that is already priced in. And I could argue for a lot of names overly priced in, yeah. which is why... I'm kind of vocalizing to our viewership that things are going to get worse before they get better in what you see in Main Street America. But don't get that um, uh, involved with where the stock market's at today. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Last thing I have, and this is going to be a really good piece, Mark. It's a health check on the American consumer. So this is Argus Research from August 17th, a really good independent research firm. And I'm going to read two topics. The one is in regards to balance sheet, and the other one is in regards to consumer spending. I'm going to start with the balance sheet. I'll pause. I'll ask for some feedback from you, and then I'll go to the second point. Is that fair? Mm -hmm. Here we go. Consumer balance sheets appear to be in good shape, and I'm quoting specifically. Okay? I apologize. I'm quoting mm -hmm. specifically from Argus. Consumer balance sheets appear to be in good shape. A combination of pandemic-related factors, such as an economic shutdown and aggressive fiscal spending, resulted in a sharp improvement in household finances. The Federal Reserve keeps track of household debt service payments as a percentage of disposable personal income. This metric, the lower the better, has fallen from 9.9% prior to the pandemic mark to a current level of 9.2%. During the depths of the pandemic, when households were receiving stimulus checks while sheltering in place, the ratio dropped to 8.4%. The average debt level since 1980 has been 11%, and the high watermark established during the Great Recession, that's a, a true recession, mm -hmm. depression you could call it, Right. in Q4 of 07, to be exact, was 132 So consumer balance sheets right now 
in my opinion, at 9.2% um, of household debt service payments as a percentage of disposable income, that's not bearish. Yeah, and and again, this, uh, yeah, you're not wearing your shirt. Um, <laughs> what if I had underneath this shirt? I just it ripped it off. The Superman that, for that you. That would be pretty impressive. Pretty impressive. Um, but yeah, and who would have thought that if we went into an environment like we did in 2020 with COVID where, you know, the economy virtually shut down, that household finances would actually improve, right? Yeah. Who would have who thunk that? Who would have also thought during that time that the American consumer was disciplined enough to pay down debt? Yeah, no one would have no one would have guessed that. that was not anyone, my bingo card. <laughs> was not on your bingo card. <laughs> so I no, I think this is great, and I like putting it into this type of context because, again, like I've said, I don't like just seeing, you know, U.S. household debt in America just because it's going to continue to go up and up and up for the rest of time. Yes, we know that, of course. but you have to have that relative to income. Income, correct, sir. And so again, this is just another thing that I think adds to the the bullish sentiment that we have going forward over the long term is that, you know, if this does or does not end up being a recession that we're in right now, compared to history, it's going to be pretty mild. I would agree. And I'm in the camp. I'm old school. You know, in my opinion, we had a recession in the first six months of the year, but mm -hmm. my personal opinion, yep. you know, we'll, we'll let the politics uh, affect the uh, eventual outcome of that topic. Right. And there was, I think there was supposed to be a possible revision of GDP from Q2 earlier this morning. So we'll follow up with people yeah. on that next week. Yep. So here's my second point on this topic, consumer spending, Mark, and I'm going to quote beginning now. And this is from Argus. Consumers are spending again, though growth rates have cooled as consumer confidence has weakened. Growth in personal consumption expenditure, the main driver of total GDP, has slowed from 13% year-over-year growth on average in the fourth quarter of 2021 to an 8% positive growth rate year-over-year year for the three months ending June. We note that total retail sales, which include retail purchases in stores and other online, as well as money spent at bars and restaurants, were, were up only 8% year-over-year through June after growing at a double digit rate this past year, end quote. And I think the thing that people have to remember too is that these comparison numbers are gonna be really, really hard to beat from like 2021 because people were doing nothing in 2020, yep. right? But then once we kind of got past it in the, in the second half of 2021, people started spending like gangbusters again. Right. So it's like comparing a company's earnings from year to year or month over month. It's like this is a really tough comparable environment, but consumption is still growing. It is not contracting. That's the biggest point, because I think the perception by most people is that, wow, people must be cutting back and spending must be not too good right now. The healthy American consumer is concerning mm -hmm. the raw data that I'm seeing is not telling me that. And again, it kind of goes back to the comment I made about the stock market and people's perceptions about things getting worse before they get better that could cloud their, their judgment about stocks. Again, growth rates are coming in. We're not contracting. We're not going negative. Just that the growth rate is slowing and you still have this disconnection between perception and reality. And on this topic of the health of the consumer, I would argue that in general, the American consumer is a lot more healthy 
than the perception of most investors. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. Because I think there's just an automatic, um, there's automatic thinking that, hey, if the economy is weak, or possibly in a recession, then things can't be good on on Main Street for everybody. Everybody's going to feel it. And I just, I don't think that that necessarily is always the case. Yeah, and let's say the um, household debt service payments as a percentage of disposable income was, you know, closer to that high watermark of 13%. Uh, compared to where it's at right now of 9.2 might be a different story because that means, okay, the consumer's kind of tapped out. I'm not seeing it in the data. It is something we're going to continue to watch. Mm-hmm. It's not that, you know, uh, as, a, as, a, as a money manager, but we're just going to kind of, you know, rest on that topic. But so far, I'm still seeing this as a positive. Yeah. And for people out there too, if they're totally concerned about consumer spending coming in a little bit, guess what that's going to be good for? Inflation. Inflation. It's going to bring prices down, supply and demand. So getting closer. Yes, sir. Back to you. Getting closer. Um, I had a financial planning topic of the week that's pretty lengthy, and I want to keep this uh, relatively short. So I'm going to push that back to next week. Okay. Uh, But we did have a listener question from Dennis that I want to talk about really quick before we wrap up for the week. Okay. Uh, Dennis asks, can funds in a traditional IRA be rolled over or converted into an HSA if I'm on Medicare? And this is a great question, question. I think, Dennis, because uh, there's a lot of confusion among this, okay? So unfortunately, once someone is enrolled in Medicare, you are not able, or you're not eligible to contribute to an HSA. Because to be eligible to contribute to an HSA, you have to be enrolled or covered by a high deductible health plan. Right. Mm -hmm. And even though a rollover is different from a contribution, it also makes you ineligible to roll over funds from an IRA to an HSA. Okay, you can only roll over funds from a traditional IRA to HSA. Like I said, if you're covered by a high deductible health insurance plan. The other thing to note here that I think is important is that if someone is not covered by Medicare, and still covered by a high deductible health plan, you can roll over funds from your IRA to your HSA, but each person can only do that one time in their life. Once. And once they do it once, you can't do it again. Okay. So it's not like, you know, when you're dealing with just IRA accounts where you can, uh, you know, convert money from your traditional IRA to your Roth IRA every year, you can only do this one time anyways. Okay. Um, And the other thing to know is that if you are covered by a high deductible health plan and you do roll over money from your IRA to your HSA, you need to be covered under that high deductible health plan for the next 12 months for that rollover not to be taxed. Got it. Okay. So there's like a little bit of what you're doing it in the exit, quote unquote. Exactly. Got it. So um, so it's a great question, uh, Dennis, but just because you're you know, when you're on Medicare, you're no longer covered by a high deductible health plan, makes you ineligible to roll over funds into an HSA. Well answered. So I would encourage our viewers and listeners to continue to send in questions. Yeah, Uh, I love them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Anything else before we leave it there for the week, Matt? I do not, sir. Okay. Well, thanks, everybody for tuning in to episode number 164. We'll be back next week with 165. Take care, everyone. 
Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors Podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.